from John 13, verses 21 to 38. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at table at Jesus' side. So G- Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm very excited to invite a special speaker today, Pastor Leslie McCurdy. Some, if not many of you know him, he is a native of Halifax, married to Katharina, and preached for the first time for First Congregational in 1989. (laughs) Leslie, come on up, you're welcome to come up. Thanks, Carl. Neither you nor I look that old. I mean, to be around in 1989. Ah, yeah. uh, well. And, uh, and thank you for reading so well. Katharina and I are delighted to be here, uh, to be invited back. It wasn't as long as 1989 that was the last time. You might remember your church anniversary recently, and I had the the privilege of stepping in at the last moment to do that, and, and it was just a great time together, and uh, I'm just looking forward to sharing the Word of God with you just now. Uh, you've been looking through John's Gospel this year, and you've reached uh, just past the midpoint in the 21 chapters. You probably have an idea in your mind already of the kind of the general drift of the Gospel of John, the way it's kind of divided up a bit. Uh, The first half of the first chapter is a kind of a prologue where John kind of sounds some of the themes that 
You'll be hearing all the way through the gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, etc., etc. From the middle of chapter 1, uh, all the way up to chapter 11, the, uh, Jesus does some teaching, but also performs several, seven actually, signs, miracles, that, uh, that show his great power and, and reveal more about him as the gospel unfolds. And then at the end of chapter 11, a decisive turn takes place when the authorities, both political and religious, decide that Jesus' time is up. He's caused enough trouble for them. He's supplanted their power and claimed to be, well, things that they wanted to be. Or else they thought had wrongly claimed to be things that they were expecting. Uh, they thought he wasn't the Messiah and that to claim that he was was a dangerous thing. And so following that last um, sign of the raising of Lazarus, the authorities decide Jesus has got to go. Uh, in chapters 13 to 17, you just started that last week, Jesus gathers at the last supper table around the Passover meal, and all the things that happen in the next, in those, what, five or six chapters, are, five chapters, are happening at that location in the upper room. The foot washing that you talked about last week, and the Last Supper, which uh, John doesn't record in any detail, about the, that has become communion, and the Lord's Supper for us, and then the last things, the farewell discourses in John's Gospel, all in chapters 13 to 17. And then in 18 and 19, there's the death of Jesus, told very deliberately, almost painfully slowly, but wonderfully. Uh, and then in chapters 20 and 21, the resurrection from the dead, Jesus' resurrection and his appearances to his friends. But for today, it's the night before Jesus was crucified and he and his disciples have gathered around the table for an intimate meal. Jesus knew, it says right at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. That's basically the drum roll to announce the decisive final acts of this salvation drama. And then we hear that Jesus is determined to do what he's been determined from the beginning to do. And that is that having loved his own throughout his ministry years, he's determined to love them to the end. Having loved his own, he's determined to love them to the end. That's John 13, 1 and 2. This Jesus story is a love story. It's of God loving the world so much that he would give his only son. And it's of Jesus loving his disciples right to the end to save them completely. This love is expressed over and over in the gospel. It was expressed when he washed his disciples' feet. <clears throat> It was expressed as he gathered around the table and 
shared bread and wine with them, symbols that expressed the love that he had for them, would have for them, as he went to the cross. It's a love story, and it continues right to the end to be that kind of story. And now in the second half of John chapter 13, we get two vivid descriptions of how his closest followers disappointed Jesus. They're hard to read. They're hard to take time about. But they're important for us, I think, to spend time with. We get two vivid descriptions of how Jesus' closest followers responded badly to that love that he was reaching out to them with. And in between those two stories, there are a couple of other things that are very briefly said, but very important to hear. So John 13, verse 21, says that after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. It's worthwhile taking a minute with that phrase. Jesus was troubled in spirit. He knew anguish and distress. He knew what it was like to be disturbed and, and deeply troubled in his spirit. Sometimes we make Jesus out to be too holy, too thoroughly divine that we forget that he's thoroughly human as well. We need to remember, I think, over and over again that, that Jesus shared our humanity completely. He was fully human, just like us. And so he knows what we go through. On almost every page of the Gospels, you can read evidence of this, of his tiredness when he sleeps in the boat, of his hunger when he comes back from temptation, when, of his compassion for people as he meets needs all around him, and here that he was deeply troubled and distressed. That means that Jesus knows what you're going through, no matter how bad it is. Jesus understands my situation and yours. He's already come alongside us. He's shared our humanity. He knows what you're going through because he's been there already, and he can save you from that, along with everything else that might trouble you. Sins, mortality, anything that distresses you. Jesus has been there, done that, and saved us from that. The reason that Jesus is deeply troubled here is that Judas, his close friend and disciple, has decided to betray the Messiah. It's a stunning reversal of a horrible change of allegiance. It's like going through your whole life being a fan of the Montreal Canadiens or Toronto Maple Leafs and then deciding at the very last minute that you're really in favor of the other guys. No, it's way worse than that, obviously. Way worse than that. The, it's betraying the friendship that they had built over the years. It's betraying the trust that Jesus had put in Judas. It's the most 
radical refusal to love, or of love rather, the worst violation of trust. As David Ford says in his new commentary on John's Gospel. It's not just a, a stunning reversal of allegiance, but it's a dramatic rejection of the love that Jesus has for him. Jesus lives a life of unconditional love. Jesus loves us and is willing to give his life for us. And the worst thing that you and I can do is to turn our backs on that love. Is to reject the determination that God has to save and rescue us. To pour out his love on us and give us new reasons for living, eternal life forever. Jesus lives that kind of love, and to reject it is the very worst thing. You can sense the spiritual battle in this, can't you, as you read these verses in John 13. God is sovereign over all and is determined as he acts out in Jesus to exercise that sovereignty and to exercise it in love, to be as persuasive as he possibly can with his love and power, his compassion and mercy, to impact people like us, people like your neighbors, the, the world around us who need to know God so badly. We see that sovereignty, that determination in this story. Jesus loves with this holy love to go on, to push on toward the cross, to accomplish the mission for which God has sent him. And he wants to accomplish that in everyone's life, in every disciple, including Judas's. And then on the other side, on Judas's side, there's the, the daunting prospect of our own human free will, of our determination to go against God, of our willingness, even when we know it's the wrong thing to do, to thumb our noses and to turn, our way, turn away from God, to reject his will, to go some other way. That's what Judas is doing. Judas is, is in his own autonomy and free will saying, no. No, Jesus, I have a better way. And, and behind that is the, the power of the evil one, of Satan, who insinuates his way into Judas's mind, who wriggles like an evil serpent his way into Judas's life, who suggests the worst when Judas should be thinking the best. Satan is influencing Judas in his evil ways. And it's not, by the way, a case of either or. Either Judas is acting in free will or Satan is pulling his strings. Both things are happening at the same time. Judas is deciding for himself, no way, Jesus. And Satan is saying, you do it, Judas. Come on, come on, come on. It's insidious. It's 
devilish. It's so evil. But it has the full cooperation of, of Judas's human will. And from a human point of view, you can see Judas's point in a way. He's become greedy. He's let money dominate his entire life. He's, was given, he was good at money, at economic things. He was given the role of treasurer in the group. But we're told in other places in the Gospels that he had already been stealing from the collective pot, taking advantage of his role as treasurer. And now his greed has expanded. He sees the possibility to profit from what he thinks ought to be done anyway, which is to sell Jesus out, to turn him away from this disastrous way that, he, that Jesus wants to go. The greed has expanded and Judas will have his way. And then with the devil's secret plotting, uh, prodding rather, he puts into to practice a terrible plan. And then, not only is there God's sovereignty and working in this situation, and Judas's free will and Satan's troubling addition to the whole matter, but there is Jesus' determination to keep on loving, even in the face of betrayal. Jesus is resolute in his determination to keep on in the way that, that God has shown him as the way to go. Jesus, the God-man, even in the face of betrayal, will head resolutely to the cross, even when his spirit is troubled by all the things that are going on around him. That's been the pattern from the beginning. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan wanted him to divert this way or divert that way. And Jesus, despite his hunger and, and his, his anguish, was determined that he would reject Satan's way and do it God's way. And now his heart is overwhelmed with sorrow. He's deeply troubled in his spirit. And unlike Judas, who throws in his lot with the evil one, the Messiah, Jesus, clings to his good, good father. And then the episode concludes with Jesus saying, what you're about to do, do quickly. So Judas leaves the table and goes out, and the gospel writer adds ominously, and it was night. I wonder if you perhaps are facing some similar spiritual battle just now. Are the circumstances of your life and the sinful tendencies of your own heart threatening your spiritual stability? Is Satan trying to undermine your commitment to Jesus? The good news is that Jesus loves you and will love you to the end. 
His cross work has already defeated the devil. His power at you, at work in you rather, his power at work in you is greater far than the power of the evil one. Greater than every other opposing force. Jesus knows what it's like to be deeply troubled in spirit. Jesus knows to have what it's like to have this kind of spiritual anguish that you or I might be going through even today. And Jesus stands beside you to keep on saving you, to keep on rescuing you from every temptation. He's done it before, and he'll do it again. Well, just as the story of Judas's betrayal dominates the beginning of this passage, the prediction of Peter's denials of Jesus features at the end of it. In verse 36, Peter picks up on something Jesus had said about going away and asks where he's going. I love, by the way, the in, in this half of the, in this section of John 13, when, and the beginning of chapter 14 as well, the way the questions that the disciples ask are the, the most basic, almost childlike questions. Where are you going? How can we know the way? Those kinds of questions. More about that next week, I expect. The, so, so Jesus has said this about going away, and Peter wants to know about where he's going, and Jesus answers by saying, you know, Peter, you can't understand this right now, but you will later. That's a, a helpful reminder, I think, for us, just that small comment of Jesus, that we can't understand it all now, but that Jesus will lead us into all the truth. Some things make a whole lot more sense in the rearview mirror. Jesus promises us that he will lead us into all the truth. But acquiring that truth is a gradual process. We'll need to be patient and trust God that we know enough for now. We need to be, yes, faithful in the scriptures day by day so that Jesus can teach us more and more so that the Spirit can work his way into our hearts, work the word of God into our hearts. We'll need to be patient and trust God for that, and that we'll find out what we need to know as we go along, that he'll keep us growing no matter what our age. Anyway, back to Peter and Jesus. The conversation goes sideways after that, Peter boasts that he'd do anything for Jesus, even die for him, which is a bit ironic, of course, because Jesus is just about to die for Peter. And if you think ahead to what you know about church history, Peter eventually did die for Christ. The tradition is that he was crucified outside Rome, much like Jesus was. But Peter, at this point, boasts that he'd do anything for Jesus, 
Will you really lay down your life for me? Jesus asks. Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Disown me. Sounds like betrayal. Except this time, the person is a person who has Jesus and his love for him at heart. Charles Spurgeon, no, Matthew Henry, I think, says that Jesus not only knows the dishonesty of betrayal by his enemies, but he knows about the tragedy of denial by his friends. Peter, Peter is overconfident, like preachers who say so surely what it's all about, maybe. Like you or me, who overconfidently overpromise sometimes. Peter was trying to do it all in his own strength. Just a few minutes before, he'd been relieved to find out that he wasn't the betrayer. They were all looking around, is it me, is it me? Now he's telling Jesus, I'll even die for you. That's, I mean, Peter was like that, wasn't he? I mean, he was the impulsive one. He was the, the one who'd say it before he thought it, practically. Who would, I mean, promise the world and then realize better to take one step ahead at the time. It was Jesus who would do the dying, of course. You see, the Christian faith is not primarily something we do for Jesus, but something that Jesus does for us. We're not the hero of this story. Leaders maybe have to hear this particularly, because all too easily it becomes all about us. But that's to make Peter's mistake. It's to get the priorities mixed up, to think that it all depends on us, when really, it all depends on what God might do through us. Thank God there's repentance and restoration, too. When you look at the story of Peter, and you'll hear it eventually as you go along section by section in John's Gospel, John will take a, a significant amount of his, the, his time and paper to tell you about about, well, about, G about Peter denying Jesus three times. It's just an agonizing story to read again about how those very unpowerful women standing around in the courtyard say, you know, you look familiar. Weren't you with Jesus? And Peter says, no, not, well, not me. And and three times it happens, and every time you read it, it feels a little bit worse because something in us is like that. Something in us wants to deny Jesus. And then John, of course, to spoil the story if you've never read it before, John in, tells the story about how Jesus met Peter after his resurrection and asked him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you? Like, just the quick answer again. 
Do you love me? Yes. Do you, do you really, Peter, love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Three denials, three restoring questions. And then Jesus' commission to Peter to tend his sheep, to be the shepherd of the Christian flock, to be an important leader in the expansion of the church that you read about in the book of Acts. But here in John 13, Jesus simply predicts what will happen. Thank God, though, there's repentance and restoration. Thank God that Jesus can take a near total failure like Peter and bring him gently back to discipleship and even leadership. So, two stories, two dramatic, difficult, despair-inducing stories, really. One about betraying Jesus and another about denying him. And although we try to push the stories back into the past to to kind of relegate them to 2,000 years of history, all we have to do is spend a little bit of time thinking about them and we read ourselves into the stories about people who could betray Jesus or deny him. And Jesus persistently loves those men again and again and again. Jesus persistently loves children and women and men today who are tempted to turn away and calls us back to him to to love him more, to respond to his love, to soak in the wonderful benefits of his death and resurrection and to go on courageously with Jesus. And right in the middle of these two stories, we get something of that encouragement. There's something else here, and it brings wonderful hope. The first thing, two things actually, that I want to just dwell on as we finish. The first is in Psalm, is in verse um, 31. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Verse 31. It's... Um, a wonderful thing that even when evil was doing its worst, when they were betraying and denying, God is doing his best work. Jesus is determined to love to the end in order that God would be glorified. The week-long arc of the Holy Week from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday will go from Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him, crucify him, to he is risen, risen indeed. At the very center of that story is Jesus' death on the cross. And it's there, John tells us repeatedly, that Jesus will be glorified. At the very worst that humans could do, Jesus dies and God does his best. God brings glory to his son Jesus and glory to himself. 
On the cross, Jesus will be praised for his saving work and God will receive the glory. The Son of Man will be glorified in the cross. I think that's the next verse. Yes, and God will be glorified in him. The Holy Trinity is a, is a mutual community of love and glorification, of, of, of communion and, and intimacy. And the Father, Son, and Spirit work together all through history from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 till the very end in Revelation 22. Working together in creation, working together in salvation, working together in bringing the final glorification of God. The praise for the ultimate victory goes to God the Father and the glory is shared with the Son and the Spirit. David Ford defines glory as the overflowing radiance, intensity, and energy of divine love and holiness. That glory was revealed in Christ, redefined by the cross, and then crowned by the resurrection. So when life is going badly, when you're troubled in spirit, or tempted to betray, or even to deny Jesus, remember that, that God's glory will come out in the end. God will accomplish his purposes. Jesus will die and be raised. The Spirit will shed the love of God in people's hearts. The word of God will go out to every nation in all the world. And God will be all in all. The victory is sure. It's happened already in Jesus. And God will bring glory to his cause. Then finally, in verses 34 and 35, Jesus speaks three times about love. A new command I give you, he says, love one another. Love is the repeated emphasis of John's gospel and especially of this section throughout the farewell discourses in chapters 13 to 17. From the love that washes feet in humble service to the love that marks being a child in the family of God to the love that Judas rejected to the love that's poured out in Jesus' blood. And then Jesus says, as he's determined to love them right to the very end, he says, love one another. Love each other right here in this building. Love these people. Love one another in your families. When Jesus, uh, one of my profs at Theological College said that when Jesus said, love your neighbor, he meant start at your own house. <laughs> the love within, within the family units that are represented here and those who are listening online too. Love like Jesus. Love one another. Love your community. Reach out and meet the needs that you see. Jesus reiterates, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. 
We love because he first loved us. We're not given the responsibility to do it cold. We're given a detailed prototype in Christ. Love like that. Love as Jesus loved you. That's how to love one another. Welcome the stranger. Watch out for the littlest and the least and the lost. Watch Jesus particularly and let him model love for you. And then by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. The next verse. Yes. All people will know that you're my disciples if you have this kind of love for one another. The love that you show in this room to people here today is the same kind of love that people out there need to see. The mission of the church is closely connected with the sort of community the church is. That's David Ford one more time. The way that that we act within our families and church families, that's the kind of love that needs to be seen outside these walls. And so Jesus calls us, you and me, to a new standard of loving. Jesus calls us deeper and deeper, as the song reminded us, into this kind of love. Even when you and I might be going through the most difficult circumstances, troubled in our spirits, betraying, denying all of the above, God has strength for us in Jesus. Spiritual strength that revives our spirits and sends us out confident in the glory to be, to be revealed, to love one another. Amen.